You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 183, The Doan Brothers and Crooked Billet. By the spring of 1778, General Washington had fought off the political attempts to replace him and was ready to put the training of his new army, which had drilled under General von Steuben all winter, to challenge the British in occupied Philadelphia. The news had already arrived in April that France had joined the war against Britain. Hopes ran high that perhaps French supplies and soldiers would soon arrive to assist the Continentals. As a result, Washington did not want to risk his army in an all-out assault on Philadelphia like at Germantown. Many wanted to wait and see if the French would arrive to supplement an attack that would have a greater chance of victory. If the British remained in Philadelphia until a French fleet arrived at the Delaware, the British might be trapped. At that point, a combined American and French attack on the city would have far more impact. But until the French arrived, that couldn't happen. At the same time, Washington was not a man to sit around and do nothing. British supplies in Philadelphia were dwindling. Washington focused on efforts to prevent people from the countryside from selling food or other supplies to the British in Philadelphia. If the Americans could cut off food supplies from land and a French fleet in the Delaware could block off supplies from water, they might even be able to starve out the British. The Americans deployed small units all around areas near the city to interdict any attempts to bring food or anything else into the British lines. Much of the control of these soldiers around Philadelphia fell to the local militia. The Continentals were struggling to survive out at Valley Forge. The local militia knew the area better and were most useful in such missions as blocking civilians rather than going into combat against the British. The man in charge of the Pennsylvania militia north of Philadelphia was General John Lacey. The young militia general, a Quaker from Bucks County, was not very experienced. He had only been 20 years old when the war began. Shortly after fighting broke out at Lexington, Lacey had set aside his Quaker principles to join the local Patriot militia. Coming from a pacifist community, there was little enthusiasm for the military, nor much of a militia tradition. In January of 1776, Lacey raised a company of 64 men from his community, and that was enough to confer upon him the rank of captain. Lacey's company served in the regiment under the command of then-Colonel Anthony Wayne. The regiment joined the Continental Army, and Lacey received a Continental Commission as an officer. He served under Wayne during the Quebec campaign as the Americans were forced to retreat back to New York. It's not clear exactly what happened, but Lacey and Wayne had some sort of dispute, 
and Lacey ended up resigning his commission and returning to Pennsylvania. There, Lacey took a position as a lieutenant colonel in the local militia. The war returned to the area as General Howe began his Philadelphia campaign at the end of the summer of 1777. Colonel Lacey took command of a regiment of militia draftees to go to the support of the state. Pennsylvania raised about 3,000 militiamen for the campaign. Lacey fought at Germantown and in some of the smaller skirmishes that fall. Another militia commander, General John Armstrong, led the militia army during this campaign. You may recall that Armstrong had command of one of the four divisions that Washington deployed at Germantown. Lacey also fought under Armstrong at White Marsh. At the end of the fighting season, after the Continentals retreated to Valley Forge, Armstrong received an appointment to serve as one of the Pennsylvania delegates to the Continental Congress. He turned over command of the militia to General James Potter. General Potter served as commander for only a few weeks before he requested to leave to go home and care for his sick wife. A Potter's decision to return home was not unusual. Militia were not expected to remain in the field after an immediate danger had passed. That was what the Continentals did. With the British now in their winter quarters in Philadelphia and the Continentals settled into Valley Forge, the Pennsylvania militia mostly went home for the winter. And this made perfect sense. There was no food or shelter to keep an army in the field. The officers and men could return home, rest up over the winter, and feed themselves, then turn out again in the spring when the fighting season began again. Even so, some militia needed to remain in the field during the winter. In January 1778, the Pennsylvania Executive Council promoted John Lacey to Brigadier General and put him in command of the militia. Lacey was just 23 years old at the time. There was, however, not much of a militia army to command. The militia on active duty had dwindled down to about 600 by the time Lacey took command, and the primary mission of those still on duty was interdicting the supplies that civilians were attempting to take into Philadelphia for sale. Lacey received word of his promotion and got word from General Potter to report to his camp. By the time Lacey arrived in camp, Potter had already left for home with no one in charge. There were only 60 men in the camp guarding the guns and equipment for an army of 3,000. Lacey took command and received instructions from General Washington to focus on interdicting commerce into the city. The state had promised Lacey that he would receive another 1,000 militia to support these efforts. Those promised reinforcements never came. Lacey's total force of about 600 actually fell to under 250 over the next few weeks. In addition to interdicting food, Lacey's militia had to deal with emboldened Tories who still roamed through the greater Philadelphia area. Although the British Army did not venture up into Bucks County, many Loyalists who lived in the area assumed that the arrival of the British would mean that the Patriots would soon be gone. Many of these Tories were either out for revenge for the way they had been treated or were seeking benefits from the British for showing their loyalty. Some good examples of this was a group known as the Doan Gang. Almost every element of the Doan's story is disputed. Some tend to view them as heroic Robin Hood types 
while others portray them as bloodthirsty outlaws. As with many things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Now, I want to tell their story because it is interesting, but my version is simply based on reading the versions of others, many of which have a rather sketchy provenance. So please don't take my interpretation as definitive. There were five Doan brothers, Moses, Aaron, Levi, Malon, and Joseph, as well as a cousin, Abraham, who formed the core of what became known as the Doan Gang. Before the war, in 1770, Moses got into a fight with his father and left the family farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. For some time after that, he lived with a local Indian tribe, and there he learned to live off the land and got to know the unsettled areas of the county rather well. According to Doan family lore, the father of the family, Joseph Doan, was a Quaker and a Loyalist. When the Patriots took control of Pennsylvania, they demanded that he pay taxes to them. Doan refused to recognize the taxing authority of these rebels and would not pay. As a result, the Patriots threw the family off of their land and reduced them to poverty. Now, others dispute this story, saying that Pennsylvania records show that it did not seize the farm until near the end of the war. However, it is possible that the eviction took place years before and the paperwork was filed much later. Whatever the cause, Moses opposed the Patriot cause and enlisted his brothers and his cousin into a group that would wreak havoc against the Patriots. In July of 1776, shortly after the British landed at Staten Island, Moses and his brother Levi met with General Howe on Staten Island and offered their services as spies. By some accounts, it was Moses who discovered the failure of the Americans to secure the Jamaica Pass on Long Island and provided the British with that intelligence. This allowed the British to move behind the Continental Lines and easily flank them at the Battle of Brooklyn. The British nicknamed Moses as Eagle Spy for the accuracy of his intelligence. Another story says that Moses learned of Washington's crossing of the Delaware on Christmas night, 1776, and rode out to see Hessian Colonel Rawl at Trenton. The colonel refused to see Doan, who instead left a note for him about the attack. According to that story, Rawl put the note in his vest pocket and continued playing cards. The Doans also may have worked to free British prisoners. After British prisoners began disappearing from Lancaster and were not found again, the Americans put an officer into the prison pretending to be a captured British prisoner. After several weeks, he was spirited away from the prison, traveling at night and hiding in the secret rooms of Loyalists during the day. The officer identified the leader of this escape mission as Abraham Doan. As the group prepared to cross the Delaware River back into British-occupied New Jersey, Abraham confronted the officer, whom he suspected of not being a real prisoner. The two men fought, and the officer escaped. Later, the undercover officer identified the safe houses and arrested 15 people who cooperated in the escape of the British prisoners. The Doans once again escaped capture. In addition to serving as scouts and agents for the British, the Doans mostly made a living by engaging in home invasions and stealing horses. 
there are stories of the gang breaking into houses at night, then beating and threatening the homeowner to give up whatever gold he had hidden on the property. Those who want to portray the Doans as loyalist heroes say they only went after the property of known supporters of the Patriot cause and particularly targeted tax collectors. Others say their attacks were more indiscriminate. Whatever the truth, the Doans developed a reputation among locals in Pennsylvania as ruthless outlaws. After the British took Philadelphia, the group focused primarily on stealing horses to sell to the British. By some accounts, the group stole over 200 horses in the region. The Doans, whose faces were well-known to locals, tended to move only at night and spent days living in caves or other remote sites where they could avoid detection. In February 1778, officials in Bucks County raised a posse to capture the Doan gang. The posse, however, came up empty. The group was too effective in avoiding detection. There are many stories that paint Moses Doan as a local hero. One story from this time says Moses Doan came across a woman from Philadelphia who had snuck out of the city to purchase some flour for her starving family. Her husband was a patriot who was serving in Valley Forge at the time. As she was returning to the city, she encountered Moses Doan and explained her plight. Despite the fact that she was the wife of a patriot, Moses gave her a purse full of money and warned her that a British guard was just up the road. Although the woman tried to avoid the British guard, he discovered her and attempted to confiscate the flower. Doan then reappeared and appealed to the soldier to let her go with her flower. When the soldier refused, Doan grabbed him by the throat and told the woman to run. When she was out of sight, he shot the soldier in the head with a pistol and disappeared back into the night. The death of the soldier brought out a guard to hunt down the killer. Doan allegedly killed another pursuing soldier and an officer that night as he made his escape. Another story puts Doan in more of a mixed light. The gang engaged in a home invasion, and although the Doans made up the core of their group, many times the group grew as large as several dozen men. On this night, one of their company was a man by the name of Foxy Joe. As the group threatened the life of the homeowner, demanding that he turn over his gold, Foxy Joe made advances on the man's wife, presumably in an attempt to rape her. Moses discovered the man, beat him nearly to death, and threw him down a flight of stairs. Afterward, Moses apologized to the husband for the incident. His men were thieves, not rapists. The Doan gang continued to harass the people of Bucks County for years after the British left the area. As I said, some considered them to be loyalists, simply stuck on the wrong side of the war. Others saw them as nothing more than brutal criminals taking advantage of the chaos of war. But the legend of the Doans is one that remains a part of local history. The Doans, of course, were not the only Tories in the area. While there were many pacifist Quakers, there were others who were willing to resort to violence for the cause of king and country. A key target of the Loyalists were the Patriot leaders and their families. When John Lacey became commander of the state militia, Loyalists threatened to attack his family and burn his farm. Lacey had to protect not only his own family, but those of other prominent Patriots, as well as other potential targets. 
Captain Richard Hovenden, who had raised a loyalist group called the Philadelphia Light Dragoons, raided a mill in Bucks County in February. The group stole or destroyed material that was expected to be made into about 500 uniforms for the Patriot Army. The raid also led to the death or capture of several dozen Continental soldiers who were guarding the mill. Hovenden would go on to serve under Bannister Tarleton during the Southern Campaign. General Lacey's lack of experience contributed to his problems. There's one letter from General Washington advising the young General Lacey to keep on his guard and stay on the move and not be stationed in any one fixed location. Doing so would give the British an easy target and would also allow smugglers to know to avoid specific locations. On another occasion, Lacey had to write Washington to inform him that his men had accidentally mishandled some cartridges, leading to an explosion which destroyed six or 7,000 cartridges and injuring five of his men. Also during his first weeks as general, the militia continued to return home. Lacey reported that at one point he had only 160 men left for duty in the entire region. And this was not entirely Lacey's fault. Not only did bad weather keep the men at home, Pennsylvania had failed to pay the militia that had turned out the prior fall. This failure to provide any compensation did nothing to encourage the men to turn out again for additional winter duty. The men who did continue to serve got most of what they needed from the goods they confiscated from the people smuggling goods into the city. This, of course, also led to a complaint that men were claiming goods that were being smuggled that they simply stole from local farms. You may recall that back in episode 178, I talked about General Wayne and Commodore Barry distracting the British in New Jersey so they could drive a herd of cattle back to Valley Forge. As that herd passed through Bucks County, Lacey was directed to provide a guard. He did not have the manpower and failed to do so. The British, under Captain Hovenden's Royal Dragoons, managed to steal most of the herd and redirect it to the British in Philadelphia. By spring, Lacey at least had a few months of experience, and the militia were beginning to return to duty in greater numbers. On April 27th, General Lacey was in command of about 400 militia, which encamped near the Crooked Billet Tavern. This is near the present town of Hatboro, which is about 16 miles north of Philadelphia. It was close enough to the British lines to invite an attack. The British had frequently raided into this area over the winter. Despite this, Lacey kept his militia in camp for several days. Local Tories informed the British of their location, and Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe of the Queen's Loyal Rangers organized an attack party made up primarily of Loyalist militia, but also included some regulars. Simcoe divided an attack force of about 850 men. The two groups marched out of Philadelphia on the night of April 30th. Simcoe planned to attack from the northeast, while the second group under Lieutenant Colonel Robert Abercrombie would attack from the southwest. The militia had put out pickets who discovered the attackers just before dawn on May 1st. The pickets, however, refused to fire a warning shot instead hiding to avoid capture themselves. The two groups descended on the main militia camp, 
opening up a ruthless attack on the surprised militia. Lacey attempted to mount a defense, but quickly realized that his men would not stand. The majority of the outnumbered and surprised militia fled into the woods, abandoning everything to their attackers. The militia lost about 20% of its force, with about 26 killed, 8 wounded, and 58 captured. According to the Americans, the British massacred many of the wounded, including setting men on fire and watching them burn to death. After the battle, Washington ordered an investigation in the murder of the prisoners and wounded in order to make a complaint against General Howe. The lieutenant who had been in command of the pickets was discharged for failure to follow orders. A little over a week after the battle, General Potter returned from his winter at home, relieving General Lacey of command. Lacey would continue to hold his militia title as general, but did not seem to serve in any active capacity after that. A year later, Lacey would return to politics and served the last three years of the war as the Bucks County representative to Pennsylvania's Supreme Executive Council. The Battle of Crooked Billet largely became forgotten, just another example of the incompetent local militia defeated by professionals. About a week after the attack at Crooked Billet, the British sent out another small expedition across the Delaware River into New Jersey. The Americans still had several ships and smaller boats upriver in Bordentown, New Jersey. They also had some small supply depots there. On the night of May 7th, the British sent a small raiding party upriver landing at White Hill, New Jersey, today called Fieldsboro, who landed the next morning. Now, this was a search-and-destroy mission. The British burned any boats that they found, as well as the houses of several leading patriots, as identified by local loyalists. The Americans got word of the raid, and thinking the British might be capturing boats rather than destroying them, scuttled several boats themselves in order to prevent them from falling into British hands. The local New Jersey militia also turned out and faced down the British raiders as they marched north toward Bordentown. According to local accounts, the militia fired one volley, then turned and ran. The British continued on into Bordentown. There they burned several more houses, including that of Joseph Borden, son of the town's namesake, as well as any ships and boats that the Patriots had not already destroyed. Having satisfied themselves that they destroyed any enemy property that they were going to find, the British returned to their ship and sailed back to Philadelphia before the end of the day. The Bordentown Raid, sometimes called the Battle of Crosswicks Creek, was another minor raid that simply showed that militia could not stop the regulars, but that they were still not afraid to turn around and take a few pot shots at them. Next week, the British throw a going-away party for General Howe, and General Lafayette almost gets captured at the Battle of Barren Hill. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, 
you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Alexander Hamilton Club members on Patreon, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Lewis White. Thanks also to Lee Seaham at the Robert Morris Circle level. And welcome to Christopher Nugent at the Standard Bearer level. Also thanks to my longtime supporters, David Rice, Thomas Heath, and Chris Roy. Everyone should remember that you can help support this podcast for as little as $2 a month by signing up on Patreon. Thanks also to Matt Williams, Paul Kallenberger, James Deere, and Virginia Starks for one-time gifts via PayPal. For those of you who want to help out with no ongoing commitment, PayPal is a great option. Visit amrevpodcast.com for more details. And as always, I am grateful for everyone who can help out. I also have a couple of corrections this week. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Thomas Matchin, an engineer who worked on defenses at West Point. I noted that he was an English engineer who came to America shortly before the war, that he participated in the Boston Tea Party and Bunker Hill. Uh, J.L. Bell pointed out to me shortly after the episode's relief that the history I quoted from was written in the early 19th century and that it is complete BS. There's no evidence that any of Matchin's claimed engineering work in England is correct. There's no evidence that he was at the Boston Tea Party. There is a chance that he was at Bunker Hill, but not defending it. If he was there, he was charging up the hill with his fellow regulars. It turns out that Matchin was a British regular who deserted from Boston in July 1775. Years after the war, someone put out a, shall we say, less embarrassing history that did not involve fighting for the enemy and desertion. In addition to being an excellent fact-checker on all things revolution, J.L. Bell is the author of a book called The Road to Concord, which, of course, is a past book recommendation of the week. He also writes a daily blog called Boston 1775, which I've also recommended before. If you search for Machin, that's M-A-C-H-I-N, you can read where Mr. Bell debunked Machin's story in several blog articles back in 2013. My thanks to Mr. Bell for setting the record straight. In the after show for that same episode, I went on to rant about JSTOR keeping all its articles behind a paywall. I failed to notice that sometime in the past few months, JSTOR changed its policy so that you could actually read up to 100 articles per month at no charge. The limit used to be only three articles. So you still have to register for a free account, and you still can't download any of the articles, so there are some annoying limitations, but I am pleased that the public does have better access to these great academic articles. All right, so this week, we heard about the Doan Gang, which still has local legendary status as outlaws in the Bucks County area. 
Moses Doan was killed in a shootout near the end of the war. Two other Doans were hanged as outlaws, and the other two fled to Canada. The two that were hanged, Levi and Abraham, are buried at the Plumstead Meeting House in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. The meeting allowed them to be buried there, but because they were outlaws, had them buried just outside the cemetery walls. Today, you can still visit their gravestones, which mark them as outlaws. Moses Doan is buried in Plumstead Township on what used to be the farm of his uncle Israel Doan. There's also a local legend about the thousands of pounds that the gang robbed from local treasuries. Some say their buried treasure still lies undiscovered somewhere in Bucks County. In many ways, the story of Moses Doan reminds me of Jesse James and his gang of outlaws. Both started out on the losing side of a war, Doan in the Revolution and James in the Civil War. Both refused to make peace and turned to outlawry, eventually being shot down. Both had brothers who had fought with them, but who survived and lived out their natural lives. Anyway, the Doans live on in local lore. I heard that a Doan gang distillery recently opened in Quakertown, taking its name from the famous Outlaws. If you enjoy these sorts of local histories, my book recommendation this week is Hidden History of Bucks County by Jennifer Rogers. It was published in 2019. Now, if you're looking for more in-depth discussion of today's topic, this is not the book you want. Hidden History is a relatively short book, under 200 pages, and covers a wide range of stories from Bucks County. Now, there is a chapter on General John Lacey and another chapter on the Doan Gang, but all of the many stories covered in the book are just a few pages long each. But if you like learning stories that are not part of the mainstream history, I think this book is an interesting read. I may be biased because my family has lived in Bucks County for nearly three centuries, so I have a biased interest in these local histories. The author is a local historian who lives in Bucks County. I believe this is her first book. If it sounds interesting to you, check out Hidden History of Bucks County. My online recommendation this week is a more in-depth book about the Doan Gang. It's an online book from archive.org called The Doan Outlaws, or Bucks County Cowboys in the Revolution, by John Rogers. I have no idea if John Rogers is in any way related to Jennifer Rogers, the author of this week's book recommendation, but The Doan Outlaws was published in 1895. Although the work is listed on archive as a book of over 400 pages, it appears to have been published originally as a newspaper column in the Doylestown Democrat. It appears that someone simply cut out the newspaper columns each week and pasted them into the pages of this book. That said, it is clearly an in-depth and detailed look at the Doan gang. So, if you want to read more about the Doans, check out The Doan Outlaws on archive.org. As always, you can search for it yourself or go to the blog entry for this week's episode for a direct link. It's at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.
What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.